I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Uncork summer with the 2020 vintage of Babylon's Turin's Mouvaldre Rosé, an elegant dry rosé from our gardens in South Africa. Visit the new.co.uk forward slash RHS to learn more. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Fiona Davison. We're starting the show at the UK's biggest flower market, New Covent Garden. Hi, everyone. Sonny Martin here, salesman at Dennis Edwards Flowers. It's been quite a busy morning up here so far. Lots of people excited to be able to buy flowers again. We've had some truly beautiful flowers in at the moment. Hydrangeas and roses in every colour under the sun. And wonderful seasonal blooms such as dahlias. From the small pom-pom shaped Wizard of Oz up to the super-sized Café Au Lait. There's lots to choose from here in an array of different colours. And I hope to see lots of you here soon. Today we're travelling from the field to the market and into your vases at home as we explore the colourful world of cut flowers. We're speaking to a world-renowned florist who's created spectacular displays for royalty, learning about the oldest and biggest flower market in the UK and getting some very useful tips from our petal-loving RHS advisors. The flowers that we created for the Prince of Wales when he married the Duchess of Cornwall at Windsor Castle was using 30,000 narcissi and daffodils to create two vast freestanding columns. It's a bit like when growing vegetables and fruit. Always grow things that you're going to enjoy because, you know, where's the joy in this if you don't? Get your vases, scissors and ribbon at the ready. It's going to be quite the show. take things back to the start and join flower grower Sel Robertson on her farm in North Norfolk. Sel grows seasonal cut flowers and is passionate about producing local and sustainably grown blooms. The flower farm is a one acre field and it's just a mile inland from the coast and at the moment we've got lots of late summer flowers blooming ready to cut to use in our bouquets and to sell to florists. So the dahlias are starting to get going and so there's lots of colour from those on the field at the moment. The second batch of sunflowers is just about to start to bloom as well and those are a variety called Ruby Eclipse. They are a lemon yellow colour with a ruby flush through the centre. So we grow lots of different flowers. Um, we grow almost 200 varieties of flowers so that we can provide mixed arrangements right from the end of March right through to the end of October, which is the British growing season. Lots of our flowers we start from seed, 
Some of our flowers are perennial varieties and we also grow lots from bulbs and corms and tubers as well. And that's so that we have a really diverse range of plant material to use in our work. It's quite challenging because I don't have any power on the flower farm, so I'm not able to use any artificial heat or light to propagate my seeds early in the season. Everything is done in tune with the seasons. So you have to be really aware of the weather and your local microclimate and how things grow in your particular location. I've always been interested in provenance of food initially and then flowers a little bit later on. I first got into horticulture working on a couple of organic farms. The organic farms that I worked on, they were producing veg for local box schemes for the local villages. So food provenance really was important to me from quite early on in my horticultural life. And that's really followed through with the flower growing. Over 90% of flowers that are bought and sold in the UK are imported. So it's been really important for me setting up the flower farm to be part of a movement that's trying to build on producing and selling flowers here, right in the UK for local customers. So I sell my flowers in a variety of different ways. I do sell direct to brides. I have a DIY bouquets and buckets service. So I don't do full wedding floristry because we are primarily flower growers. I'm not a florist. So we do sell flowers direct to brides. They can come and pick up buckets of flowers as well as their bridal party bouquets and buttonholes. And lots of brides we're finding now are looking for locally grown flowers because they're looking at keeping down the carbon footprint of their event. So they're quite often quite um, eco-conscious when they're planning their weddings. The other parts of my business is that I sell flowers wholesale. So I sell wholesale flowers to local florists as well. And obviously lots of those flowers go to weddings and funerals and different sorts of events. I just love growing plants. I love to be outside with my hands in the soil and a favourite part of my job is actually growing something from seed and then being able to cut and gather a range of flowers and put them together into something that's going to bring joy to someone. And all of that, you know, comes from a tiny seed. Robertson from Forever Green Flower Company. As Sel mentioned, it's important to think about buying flowers sustainably. She's part of a national network of flower growers called Flowers from the Farm, which aims to reduce travel miles by promoting locally grown blooms. Now we couldn't make a programme about cut flowers without visiting one particular London-based market. I'm sure like me, when you think of Covent Garden Flower Market, you get images of My Fair Lady and baskets of blooms in the old Covent Garden. And that's not surprising, there was a flower market there since before St Paul's Cathedral was built. But let's go back to reality. Celebrity florist Simon Lysett has been using the wholesale flower market for 30 years. I'll let him set the scene. 
The joy of going into New Covent Garden Flower Market any time, it's always in the morning and it might be at an ungodly 2am, 3am, 4am or a little bit more civilised if you've had a bit of a line. But as you walk in, you cannot help be uplifted by the flowers that are there and the people that are there. It's an incredible melting pot of colour, it's a melting pot of cultures, it's a melting pot of florists, of wholesalers, so you will be meeting people that could be conceived of as your competitors, but do you know what, the world's big enough for there to be a few of us florists out there. The turning of the seasons is always so evident, and there's just such an abundance and such a sense of life, it's a pulsating building that's throbbing with energy, with colour, I always say to anybody, if you haven't been, go and go either at Chelsea Flower Show time in May for a peony fest or go in the autumn when it's a parade of dahlias and amazing autumn colours. We'll be hearing all about how Simon arranges his flowers later in the programme. But I wanted to know more about the market. Here's Rebecca Barrett, Head of Marketing at the Centre, to tell us about its rich history and significance today. The market dates all the way back to 1200 with first records of the Covent Garden where monks from the Abbey of Westminster grew fruits and vegetables and they sold their surplus products to Londoners and a regular market popped up near to the Strand. And it wasn't until 1670 actually that they started selling flowers there and that carried on. Um, we're all familiar with Covent Garden, famous tube station and shopping district but actually that amazing building there is the original Covent Garden horticultural market and that remained there right the way up to the 8th of November in 1974 when the final trading bell rang at Old Covent Garden Market. And then on the 11th of November 1974, it opened at its new home in Nine Elms, which is where it remains today. The size of the market at the moment is 80,000 square foot. We've got 18 wholesalers, 10 of them are cut flower wholesalers, four are plants and two are foliage and two are just sundry. So that's all the things that the florists need to, um, you know, the ribbons, the glue, the wreaths, the foam, everything they need. The atmosphere in the market, I just think it's packed full of character and charm. It's a real experience to visit. It's totally bustling and energetic. And there's sometimes a real sense of urgency and pace. There's definitely a lot of banter, and the traders really want to do their best. 39% of the customers of New Covent Garden Market Flower Market now are contract and event florists. So those are the people that supply hotels, corporates, shops, and then events are the big things like weddings that, you know, there are so many of, huge parties, it could be Henley, it could be Wimbledon. So it serves all sorts of people and, you know, we've had fashion shoots in there recently. It's just beautiful. It serves, if, if, you've, if you live in London, you will have seen flowers from New Covent Garden Market at some point, absolutely. Rebecca Barrett speaking about New Covent Garden Market, now in South London. It's incredible to think that the market has existed in one form or another for such a long time. Given my job as head of the Lindley Library, I'm particularly interested in the history of cut flowers and flower arranging. Ancient Egyptians were decorating with flowers as early as 4,500 years ago. They regularly put cut flowers in vases, 
and very stylized arrangements were used during burials, for processions and also as table decorations. Flowers were chosen because of their symbolic meaning. The lotus flower or water lily, for example, was considered sacred to the goddess Isis and was often included in arrangements. Around a thousand years ago, flower arranging arrived in Europe and was particularly popular in churches and monasteries where flowers and plants were used for food as well as for decoration. But skipping ahead a fair few years, there's a wonderful tradition for using flowers at all sorts of events around the world. Weddings, funerals and all manner of religious festivals. And one of the most well-known names in the arrangement industry is Simon Lysett. Flowers knock the rough edges off life, so they enhance any occasion, be it a sad occasion or a happy occasion, but they also can help just tell a story. And one of the first questions I will ask of any client is, what do they want their event to be about? What do they want it to say? Quite often that question is answered purely by the fact that they have decided to have their party in Kensington Palace or with the Victorian Albert Museum. I'd like to think anybody looking at an event I've had involvement in would realise that there will always be an abundance of flower. It will be immaculately worked. It will have an element of humour to it. And it really absolutely thrills me when I do something for a client that I've never done before. My earliest memories of flowers are actually from an RHS-affiliated flower show in the town of Warwick, where I was born and brought up. And at the age of seven, I went to the local town flower show and was so inspired. It is why now, aged nearly 54, I am a florist working with flowers. Walking into a marquee, a proper traditional old school marquee with guy ropes and poles, that smell of damp grass and canvas in the end of August, it's visceral, I can still smell it now. The mix of the vast leeks and carrots and dahlias, the jars of pickles, the baking, the floral art, the flowers, it was just the abundance of nature and the curated effect that you could achieve using plants and flowers. And it was just, it absolutely ignited a spark. And ever since then, all I ever wanted to do was be amongst and work with flowers and plants. I was really lucky that a neighbour of my parents, who still lives next door but two to them in Warwick, Norma, she used to teach City and Guilds flower arranging and would do weddings for friends and family at the weekend, so I would go and help her. So she was always very supportive and very kind, and I've had no formal training, but I used to sit at her side, almost like an apprenticeship. And then I would go and work in local flower shops and just, I was relatively precocious. I would ask people things, they would be supportive. And age 14 and 15, going to an all-boys school in Warwick, the world was quite an unkind place in those days. So I was named called teased and bullied for being interested in flowers. But I didn't really care because I knew what I wanted to do and I was fairly steadfast and determined in doing it. A 
As I look back on events that I've created that are still memorable, I remember very well, I was fortunate enough to create the flares on the film Four Weddings and a Funeral. And for each of those weddings and the funeral, there needed to be a difference of taste, a difference of style, a difference of the family that were involved because you were gradually learning about these different families, whether they felt that Duckface's wedding was posher than the first wedding of Charles. So all of that was quite fun to do. So that was brilliant training because each client wants something to look different. And when I look back and think some of the weddings that we've created are the flowers that we created for the Prince of Wales when he married the Duchess of Cornwall at Windsor Castle was using 30,000 narcissi and daffodils to create two vast freestanding columns. And then in the Malachite Urn, which is about two and a half metres tall and stands at the far end of the Grand Reception Room in Windsor Castle, we created a beautiful decoration and had been allowed to cut branches of foliage and flowers and plant material from the Savile Gardens and Windsor Great Park. So these huge branches of magnolia and cherry that were bursting into bloom were the basis for our decoration and then we threaded through a, a myriad of beautiful spring flowers. And that was just so iconically memorable. And then when Princess Beatrice married Jack Brooks Bank recently, we were asked again to help with flowers for the reception within Windsor. And it was in the autumn, so instead of the Malachite urn being filled with spring stems, it was filled with an abundance of beautiful autumnal foliage, again gathered from Savile Gardens. And amongst which we put in some little moments of foraged conkers and beech masts. So even within the most grand and extraordinary unique setting, it was lovely to bring in the nuance of the seasons. It was wonderful to be able to enjoy and celebrate nature in a curated way with some little Simon touches added in. So lucky when I'm in London, I use New Covent Garden Flower Market. I'm a massive fan. And within New Covent Garden Flower Market, which I've been buying from for 30 years, there are amazing traders who look after me and will find, they'll go to the ends of the earth and literally get into their car at the end of a 12-hour day and drive to a supplier or a little grower to pick up some sweet peas that they know I might need. The raw materials that we have to work with are so utterly beautiful. The flowers are so incredible, the foliage we work with, the plants, that that is nearly always the stem. And I always want the flowers to still be the star. I want them to really show up for their performance for me, but I still am looking for them to be the divas. That doesn't need to be me. It still needs to be those blooms. For anybody at home wanting to create their own arrangement, think about where it's going to be, think about what you want it to be, and then don't worry anymore. Find yourself a suitable vase or vessel, and that could be a really lovely old jam jar that you like, it could be a chipped wine glass that you can't use anymore, or it might be a very bog standard glass vase that you received a bunch of flowers in. Make sure it's spotlessly clean and tidy because clean, clear vases help our flowers stay fresh for longer. Fill it half full with fresh water and then look and see what flower and plant material you've got.
Simon Lysert speaking to us from LA. Simon's written a book called People of the Flower Market about the characters in the industry. Our very own Lee Hunt and Helen Bostock are masters at flower arrangements. Helen has attended the Jane Packer Flower School and Lee is well known for his displays. Let's join them for some tips on what to grow, how to grow it and what works best. Helen, I know you've got a passion for cut flowers that you love bringing into the house. Where did that begin? Well, probably actually from a very young age when actually it was a little bit naughty. I remember as a kid being allowed in the front garden. We had a load of flowers in the borders, very traditional, you know, a central rose bed and then just a tiny little square of grass. And I created this flower painting on the grass, on the lawn, which I was terribly proud about until some adult discovered it and I got into the most tremendous trouble. Thankfully it didn't put me off and when I got into horticulture a little bit later and initially yeah it took me down the route of cut flower growing. We're going to go on to talk about what you can grow at home. I'm kind of thinking well one of the things that often people buy automatically because it's the flower of love, it's the thing that we see on Valentine's Day, is the rose. And I'm kind of wondering, well, just to begin, can we grow roses for cut flowers or is that something we've still got to buy that's being flown in often from places like Holland, Israel and Kenya? Well, my answer is yes, we definitely can. It might not be those particular varieties which you would get at a florist, but you're not missing out because the ones which you can grow at home will often have added benefits such as tremendous fragrance. In my own little cut flower bed, top of my list was to get planting Chandros Beauty and Nostalgia because as soon as you pick even a single bloom from those and it doesn't even have to be an open bloom the fragrance when you put your nose to them is really something and I think there's quite a lot of the David Austin roses which work really well in the garden as cut flowers so if you feel that oh that's a bit sacrilegious to be out cutting your rose heads off you know um, to bring them indoors from the garden then make it guilt-free and dedicate a little spot somewhere in your plot or maybe um, if you've got an allotment for growing some roses that you can actually pick from. I mean, I'm sat here at a, at a desk at home with a beautiful stem of nostalgia rose right at my side. Yeah, there is something about knowing where that's come from, that it, it is from home, you know. Start with something you, you would love to have. It's a bit like when growing vegetables and fruit. Always grow things that you're going to enjoy because, you know, where's the joy in it if you don't? I happen to know that one of the roses you mentioned, Shandos Beauty, which is that beautiful, it's kind of a, a loose hybrid tea, isn't it, in a pale pink, really strong glossy foliage as well. It's the one that Mary Berry, our RHS ambassador, planted all through her new garden. And again, she highlights that it's a brilliant cut flower. I have had quite a few ups and downs with bringing things into the house. I know that you you like to grow a few as well, Lee. Do you have any tips on how to stop those lovely blooms that you've put all your effort into just simply keeling over as soon as you get them in the house, you know, when the petals are dropping off? Yeah, I think the first thing actually is to get them back into water as soon as possible. 
The thing, though, is that when we pick the flowers, very quickly the ends of the stems will start to dry up. So when we get them in to kind of reconnect the sap in the stem to the water that's going to be beneath the bottom of the stem, it's worth cutting off the bottom centimetre or so of stem just to make sure that it get that really good water connection. If you've got quite long stemmed plants as well, initially it can be worth sort of plunging them quite deep just to try and remove air locks. So if you're finding that you've you've been out there picking quite a while, something like a dahlia, pushing that in quite a deep bucket for a good hour or so can make sure that the water goes up. Some things as well, they're always going to be a, a bit floppy and difficult. One of the, the classics for this is things like euphorbia, where you've got all this white sticky sap, and obviously that is irritant, so you might want to wear gloves. But if you just put that in water, it won't ever stand up straight. It'll always be wilty. But things like that, actually, if you cut the stem, put a, a jar of boiling water, and then dip the stems in, often they'll change colour. Oddly enough, the, um, a lot of the euphorbias are kind of ready colours. And when they're ready, they've turned to a green shade within a minute or two, and then they can be taken out and put in a normal vase of water, and they will take up water. We're going into autumn now, so what kind of things should we be thinking about now that we should be beginning to get in that we can start to pick for next spring into summer? There's a few things I'd be having on my on my shopping list for next year's cut flower um, patch. First of all, get your seeds on order. There's a lot of annuals which are perfectly hardy that can be sown in the sort of late summer autumn. They'll make small little seedlings which will then go through the winter and have a head start on getting their flowering spikes up early next year. So for me, a cerinthi and perhaps cornflowers, English marigolds are really lovely for doing that. They're really tough. Perhaps loving a mist, that's a really lovely one, uh, Nigella. Anything really, I think, that just gives you the feeling that you've got a few in the bag, you know, and ready to go for next year, because it can be a bit of a wait if you sow everything in the spring. Then you're sort of twiddling your thumbs waiting for the first flowers to pop. Another thing for me would be, um, of course, the spring bulbs to be starting to look at catalogues now as well and maybe think about putting together a bit of a collection. Tulips have got to be in there if you want a real sort of range of colours. Yeah, and, and go for a few flamboyant things, you know, some of the parrot tulips or, you know, something, a rococo or something like that that's going to just make you smile a bit when it comes through in the spring. And then I guess the last thing that I would put on my shopping list would be some of those flower roses that we've talked about. Some top tips for me there, and I really need them. I'm not a natural flower arranger. The most I get to is possibly cutting three inches off a bunch of daffs, so there's some inspiration for me to follow. However, there's plenty of inspiration for me closer to home as well. The Lindley Library's crammed with lovely books about flower arranging, from really beautifully illustrated Japanese books with the art of Ikebana, through to really elaborate Victorian table displays for grand dinner parties. So we get lots of student florists at the library coming looking for inspiration, so maybe I'd better have a peek as well. I've really enjoyed learning more about the vibrant flower industry today. If you want any more information on anything in the show, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. 
We'll be back next week. But until then, from me, Fiona Davison, it's goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.